0: Okay, um, Dave and Kay, welcome to you guys. I'm glad you're here. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, fine. Good, good, good. Um, Okay, let's, a couple of, a couple of, are they okay? Yeah. A couple of um, business things. Um, I think you all know, um, Heather, um, I I think I've written Stephanie and I, were you here at the beginning or is this your first appearance? I, I don't, we haven't seen you. Did you show up in the beginning? I can't remember. No, not on Zoom. Yeah, that's I what have, I thought. Well, on this. I yeah. haven't done the virtual meeting. This is yeah. my first virtual yeah. meeting. Um, I would be really grateful if you get a hold of the other um, people from the teachers' table because I missed them. Um, we've heard from a couple of them. The the mom with um, Francisca, the daughter, wrote, yes. We haven't seen her. Um, yeah. I'd be grateful if you contacted them, give them a push. But, um okay. For those of you who don't know, all the audios are online, on a blog, the, the um, Literature's Prophecy blog. Um, Michael Grosser, the guy that has done all of this amazing job, has put it together. It's a beautiful, he's done a really good job. All the audios are available. So any of you who wanted to listen to The Old Man on the Sea, I mean, the first talk we had on last night, all you have to do is go on that blog. Literature's prophecy—it's one word—and go to the content page, and it'll take you to all the all the writers that we've done. So they're all there. So if, if any of you want to um, are interested in doing the Divine Comedy on your own, you've got all those lectures, or Shakespeare, any of his plays, or Dostoevsky, or Hemingway, or C.S. Lewis's "Till We Have Faces" is, is a—that's you know, my favorite. I know, I know that that sues. Anyway, it's all there. You're welcome to go on. At the bottom of the content page are two options, yeah. Seton and Francis, and you can click on either of them or both of them and find all the hard copies of materials that I'm giving. So I'm, I'm trying to get out um, outlines for each of the classes the way I would put on the board because I'm, I'm so visual oriented and I, I, I feel like I'm not doing something if I don't get those outlines on. So they're there, and there's other notes. There's maps and schemes and um, study guides. Um, they're all available, so you're welcome to use them. Uh, Michael and I are thinking about making a password um, to have access to those because I I, I know from things that... I, I don't follow this stuff, but I know from things that he uncovered that there have been people all over the world that click in on this thing. You know, they... There were a lot of hits on Hamlet. A lot of people who wanted to, you know, just probably Google Hamlet and came on this. And so I, I know people um, around the world have access to this and to it. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's wise to open everything. I, that's a decision we still have to make. But anyway, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys tonight is to give serious thought about making donations. The I'm going to put the. Virgil study guide online um, in a few days its its copyrighted its um, you guys have seen my um, you guys have seen my study guide so you know how extensive they are I think they're really really good anyway um, we're thinking about asking for donations so that if any of you want to make donations you can write to, write to us and let us know or you can get on PayPal. If you're already in PayPal, you can make donations through that. Mike Michael will, will set it up. But we'd be glad to have um, any financial help that you guys are willing to offer. So I think that's the only business stuff. Um, we're still in the process of working with this. I, 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 the general public has access to it. I'm not sure that they should have access to the hard copy stuff, the study guides because they're they're copyrighted and they're um, I think they're really, really good. so we'll see. Um, tonight we're going to start Virgil. I want to I want to begin with a, um, a quick couple of reflections on the Homeric world, the Greek world that we're leaving. and I'd like to try to connect them with Christ. Um, but before we do I want to I want to um, say a prayer. Um, and ask all of you. We're, I think because things are gradually settling, I'm going to open up prayers again online the way we used to do. I've been reluctant to do it up to now because it takes so long to get going. Um, it, technically, it's people are confused. and If all of you could try to come online at a 615, 620, it would help so that we can start as close to as we can to 630. Um it would it would be helpful. Um, where am I going? So I I we're not gonna I'm not gonna ask for prayers, but we're approaching that. I'm I'm gonna do it soon because it's been too important. One of the women last night in the Francis class was I thought really brave. Really, really, really brave. They just had a new um granddaughter and she had meant something about the struggles involving the the child's birth and I I just so admired her courage um, for asking for prayers and I sent an email out to everybody in the Francis group asking for prayers for a number of people if any of you have serious prayers I, I would be so happy sorry actually if you didn't ask for them I'd be so happy if you did if any of you have serious prayers please let us know in your emails We will include them in our prayers. I would ask all of you to pray for Suzanne and me, for our own kids. Um, It's a difficult time for everybody in our culture, I believe. Um, So eventually I want to get back to saying, asking you for prayer requests, but I want to hold off a little bit more until we are really settled. Um, For our prayer tonight, what I'm going to do is read the reading for Monday mornings, uh, mass. That's going to be our prayer. Because it bears so directly on what we're about to enter with the Aeneid. And um, if, um, if any of you have started, you'll see the connection right away. For those of you who are just starting the Aeneid, I would say try to read a couple of books, chapters each week. Um, I haven't put a definite sign on but I'm going to try to couple of, cover a couple of chapters each night. You know my practice. I don't want to. I don't want to drag it out because I don't think that's good for our understanding. If we drag it out too long, we we lose a sense of the connectedness between things. Um, and I don't want to be too brief. I, I know that you all have your lives and you're busy, so I'm trying to find a midpoint there. So if you can read a couple of chapters a week, two or three, whatever you do, um, but um, I'll, I'll go through it the way I have all the other works that we've been doing. The Aeneid um, is about the, the loss of a people. You know from the, I mean, you are in a, you guys are really in a rare situation. Um, you, um, you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey now. You've read both of Homer's works. We don't see the war um, coming to an end in the Iliad. We hear about it in the Odyssey from things that Odysseus says, but we don't see the end of it. Now in the Iliad, we're going to experience um, the destruction of Troy. Um, who just came in, Tina? Tina, I think. It, um, can you hear me, Tina? Yes, we're, I can hear you. Okay, I would be so glad if you'd show a picture of yourself because I, I still want to. I no, want I want to uh, You don't see me. No, there's a TA, there's a circle on the screen, but I don't see an image, and there's no. not an image of... Uh... Not, that TA isn't me. No. Uh, I I, I, that's, that is me, it's Tess Avelina. Tess, yeah, and I know, but you you yeah. didn't come on, I haven't seen an image of you either. I, I would just love to see an image of you and Tess and Tina, but, but so you guys can hear me, right? Yes, yeah. perfectly. Okay. I'm going to mute you guys all because from what I understand, if um, I know how to do this, if I mute you all, the sound improves. But remember, if you guys ever have a question, jump in. Don't, don't be shy about interrupting. Just unmute yourself and jump in. If there's a confusion or a clarification you need or whatever it is, just ask, okay? But I'm going to mute you all. Um, come in anytime you want, okay? Um, we don't see the destruction of Troy in the early Odyssey. What we see are these two great heroes. <coughs> um, Achilles and Odysseus, who are extraordinary men. That's Bob, our... You muted yourself. Oh, I did? Oh, well. Wow. Or at least I can't hear you. Okay, can uh, you guys hear me now? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. Okay, I don't know what to do. Can you guys all mute yourself? Um... If you're not, just because I think it's supposed to help with the sound, but um, what I was saying is we don't see the destruction of Troy. What we see are these two extraordinary men, and we get a picture from Homer of a possibility of human perfection at the natural level, not supernatural, that that waits on Christ, what we're shown is that human beings are these extraordinary creatures who are capable of doing amazing things. One of them's in war, one of them's outside of war going home to his wife. And we see exactly what it takes to live in either of those conditions. The beauty of this, we didn't spend much time on it that I remember but I know we touched on the Iliad. If you remember the end of the Iliad when Achilles gets his um, armor you remember that his armor shows that there are two cities of men, the city of war and the city of peace. And those are the two conditions of our human existence. And if, if you've if you been listening the last couple of weeks, if you were here, you know from our work in the Odyssey that there are two cities that are prototypes of all other cities. Scaria, the Phaokians, and um, the Cyclops. This sort of um, suburban, ideal people, um, comfortable, secure, but soft. They don't know war, they don't know difficulties, they're too soft. On the other hand there are the barbarians, the cyclops. Those two peoples grew up side by side. So what Homer's show, showing us runs absolutely contrary to what modern scientists presume with a theory of evolution, which is that we're evolving and getting better. Anybody who looked at reality would know how much, how, what of a joke that is we there's as much barbarism today Wow there's as much barbarism today I don't even know what to do with this. Um, um, does anybody know how to what just happened? Oh Mike. Doc I'm gonna go ahead you guys can all hear me right do you all hear me? Somebody else is sharing their screen. I, yeah, something happened. I don't know it. I'm going to call Mike and see if he can, unless somebody online knows what to do here. Um, the, the modern scientists have, have set forth this theory that we're evolving, so we're always getting better. The biblical account is that when Adam and Eve fell, they lost the garden, and the city of Enoch was created, and good and evil grew up together. And men and women um, turned their love from God to themselves and became selfish. So that men began to use women for themselves, and women began to do the same thing. So that both of us are falling. And one of the beauties of both of those works is in the Iliad we see how men can use women. And in the Odyssey, um, it becomes very clear the the variety of ways in which women can use men. And that's what we're left with. Um, where was I going? In the Iliad, sorry, we've got these two shields of two cities, um, the city of war and the city of peace. In um, Aeneid, we've got a city being destroyed. And in the Homeric world, we saw these images of these two great figures, Achilles and... Odysseus. And from Homer's perspective, they are the ideal of what man can be when he's at a state of war and when he's in a state of peace. Because remember, those are the two um, eternal conditions. They have been with us from the beginning, they're always with us. Man's always going to be at a state of war, he's going to be doing things to cause war, he's um, going to answer them and there will be communities that are at peace. Those are the two conditions. Um, God, I don't, Paul. You guys excuse me for a minute. Paul, sorry for a minute. Um, hey. hey, Tina. Tina, uh-huh. I think you're sharing your screen. That's why we're seeing this. Can you unshare? You know what? What do you guys see? Well, we see your, your Microsoft, um, all of your icons and everything. <laughs> we can see your computer. You're, you know, no. you're... Um, oh, is that her- it? There you go. Yeah, she, she ended it. Can you guys see me? Yes. See- yes. Wow, who did, who said that? I missed. That was me. Oh. I am, like, trying to speak to this soul. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Sorry. Thank <laughs> you. You're in your screen. Anyway, you guys are following, yeah? In the Homeric world, we got Homer's presentation of all that a man can be in the natural order. At war, at peace. At home, at war. Um, What we're getting in the um, um, Aeneid right now is an image of that city being destroyed. So we're watching a whole civilization, because remember the Trojans had gathered all these peoples from all over Asia together to hold off these Achaeans, these Greeks. We don't see Troy destroyed. What we see are these two glorious men, Achilles and Odysseus. What we're getting now is that story told from another side. The story's going to be told um, by by a man who survived the war who was on the losing side. So after Aeneas gets to Carthage, he's going to tell his story and we're actually going to see, feel, what it means to be destroyed. Wives raped, children killed, buildings destroyed. The gods are taking it apart brick by brick. We're watching a city get destroyed. Aeneas is going to have to um, take his family and leave. So this, um, he he's a man who has lost everything that's important to him, absolutely everything that's important. And now, um, following the call of the gods, he's got to create a new world. And while he does it, we're going to become aware that um, these two glorious figures that we saw in the, Iliad and the Odyssey, Achilles and Aeneas are not all that glorious. And I've done everything I can to show them from Homer's view because I, it's what I believe. But now we're going to get a different view. We're going to get Virgil critiquing those two men and we're going to get a very different view because the Rome that comes into existence in this book, this Rome, this is going to be the center of Christendom, this Rome, um, this Rome has a very different way of looking at human beings, and we'll see what it is. But I wanted to just preface our prayer tonight with that, because um, the the reading Monday morning for those of you who go to mass in the week will remember it. It's God saying, God's angry. He doesn't like what people are doing. They're too soft. They're too wealthy. They're too comfortable. They're turning to their gods. He's saying, "Don't put on any sandals." Or, I mean, don't. Wear covers. He's saying, "Get ready to travel, because they're going to lose everything." And if you remember the gospel, Christ followed up because the the man comes to him, who's who's got everything. He's got wealth. He's got property. He's got comfort, but something's missing in his life. And he goes to Christ and asks, "What must he do?" And you know from the reading, he says, "If you really want to do something, give up everything you have to the poor. Come follow me." So Christ is saying, "Give up everything." give up everything. So I want to make that connection. In the Aeneid we're going to experience what it means to have nothing. A whole civilization is lost and out of that loss after that humiliating defeat is going to come the man who will be the founder of Rome. So one of the meanings we can give to Rome right now is this is a place for the defeated. It's, it's a place for fugitives to come for a new life. And I'm putting it that way because we know from our history that that's one of the most important meanings to America. Right, Our founding was fugitives came here so they could practice their belief in God, that they would have the freedom to pursue a life. So one of the fundamental principles of the American democracy is this is a place for everybody. It doesn't matter what person's country was, his place of origin, his race, his ethnic background, it does not matter. Those things are secondary to America. The most important thing about America is that we not let racial identities, national identities, define us. We have come here to be one with each other. That's the principle of the American founding. The ultimate origins of that is Virgil's Rome. The two greatest obstacles to the founding of Rome in Virgil will be ethnic racial prejudices. He's going to have to leave his Greek world behind. He's got to leave it. The Trojan world behind. When he gets to Italy, he's going to find people who are, who are killing each other because of their racial divisions, their tribal identities. So the, the cost of um, founding this new, city, this new kind of city, because it, it's absolutely new. No other city in the world has been anything like this. This is a place where all men can come and not let their past determine how they treat one another. So that's at the heart of what we're about to start. Okay. So here's the reading. This is my prayer for us tonight. Okay. In place of the prayer, I'm going to um, read this reading from Monday morning. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is a reading from Ezekiel. It's from 2415 and on. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, by a sudden blow I am taking away from you the delight of your eyes. These are the people he loves. right? These are the people he loves. Son of man, by a sudden blow I am taking away from you the delight of your eyes. But do not mourn or weep or shed any tears groan in silence, make no lament for the dead, bind on your turban, put your sandals on your feet, do not cover your beard, do not eat the customary bread, that is get ready to travel." Um, the, you know I've been, Suzanne and I talk a lot about this because of tickets. If we don't learn to live as if we have nothing, no matter how much wealth we have, if we don't learn to have nothing and we depend on that wealth for our existence if that wealth we this that was the theme of the iliad you know if your identity is determined on um, booty <coughs> then you're nobody if it's taken away that was the great theme of the iliad right um, everybody measured themselves by their wealth Achilles stepped outside of that world didn't make it the source of his identity and we discovered that there's some intrinsic human dignity to the human person because there's something divine in him. So we're just picking up that theme, but we're going to move it a huge step forward tonight. But God is saying um, to Zico, the prophet, um, do this, this, this. Uh, Put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your beard. Do not eat the customary bread. That evening, my wife died and the next morning I did as I had been commanded. Then the people asked me, (coughs) Will you not tell us what all those things that you are doing mean for us? I therefore spoke to the people that morning, saying to them, Thus the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, These are the people he loves. He's saying to all the Israelites, his, his children, his people. Thus says the Lord, your God, I will now desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold of your pride, the delight of your eyes, the desire of your soul. The sons and daughters you left behind shall fall by the sword. Ezekiel shall be a sign for you. All that he did you shall do when it happens. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall do as I have done, not covering your beards, not eating the customary bread. Your turban shall remain on your heads, your sandals on your feet. Get ready to move. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away because of your sins and groan one to another. The word of the Lord. Um, Help us to hear your words to us. Strong warnings, grave warnings about how easy it is for us to let other things become our gods, particularly our possessions. Strengthen us, please, um, to keep our sandals on, um, to not let these things become more important than you, whatever our possessions are. And um, strengthen us to be open to you, to these works, for all the wisdom that they have to offer, and more importantly, help us to live them in everything we do. In our families, with each other, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, that's the reading. Um, I want to just briefly th- cast my mind, our minds, back to Homer for a minute. It's really a little bit repeating what I've just said, but try to keep it in context. Um, in the Homeric world, we learned a couple of things. We learned that there's this human perfection that man is capable of, you know. And I've been stressing the, can you turn that light on, Doc? Mm-hmm. I've been stressing that for a number of reasons, because you know from our modern world that, um, that the both the scientific worlds and the Protestant worlds give us a very different view of man. According to the science view, we're all individuals and isolated. We're in space. We're atoms. of. Um, there's no capability of perfecting a nature. They don't have a sense of a nature. I mean, for them, there is no nature. People can change their sex. They can do whatever they want. There's no nature. Um, in the Homeric world, there's a perfection that's possible in the, in the human order, the natural order. Not supernatural, Natural. And we saw it was in the Iliad that for a man to achieve his perfection in the natural order in dangerous circumstances, that is in a war, you know from what we learned there that um, it isn't until a man will admit his own faults, acknowledge his sins, and accept death, that he can become who he's capable of being. Because up until that time He's afraid that somebody else is going to be better than he is or afraid of admitting his faults because he'll seem to be weak. We've gone through this with the Iliad, right? The only man in the Iliad who acknowledges his faults is Achilles. And the only, um, the only one who accepts his death willingly is Achilles. And we saw that once he did, nobody could stop him. It's a little bit, and I really want everybody to hold on to this. It's a little bit like a man saying in public, I am an alcoholic. Once you admit that to people, what do you have to be afraid of? The more serious question comes is how many of us accept our own death? It's easy to talk about it, Achilles does. Lots of men will admit their faults and do it with the idea that they'll be able to get everything they want that they don't have to accept death. It's only when he accepts his death, that is when he gives up everything, that he can become who he is. And you know that I've argued with you since the beginning that that takes us right up to Christ because that's exactly what Christ says. So long as, even if we hedge life, if we, if we give ourselves but we hedge life against it, we're still holding something off, there's still some fear in us that we're going to lose something. Is that clear? I've, I've just got to make that emphatic. Is that clear? If we hedge life and we think, I'm going to make all these sacrifices while we're still not sacrificing our life, then it means we're still afraid of losing something. And that fear can become paralyzing. Is that clear? Christ says, (laughs) Zico, put on your sandals. Christ says, give up everything. Is everybody clear? Okay, that was Achilles. So in the Iliad, he's showing us that it's only when a man admits his faults and gives up his life and has nothing to fear anymore that he can accomplish what he did. And you remember what happened in that book. When he went back into the war, all the gods came back into the war. It's what I call a psychomachia. Remember all the gods went to war? Because I think that's Homer's way of showing when a man makes that choice, it it can't not involve the gods. That, that there's some spiritual disorder, that there's a rearranging in the spiritual order of things. The gods lined up and the Western gods defeated the, remember the Eastern gods by and large? It shows that in the West, there's this new image of man emerging. That there's this dignity to the human person that's extraordinary. The human person is good. The East, the East was enabling Priam was an enabling father. You know, the way he kept the war going, the way he kept rescuing his kids. Um, we're watching what the effects of what happens in the East. Hector's a great warrior. But when you set him against... You remember his words at the end when we talked about The, the most important thing for him was what people thought of him. And because he did... There's no way he could stand up to Achilles because the people, Achilles didn't care what he wasn't arrested by that fear. Is this clear? Is everybody following? This is just a quick rehearsal. So in Achilles we saw this extraordinary, and the modern mind, if you listen to, if you read the critics on this stuff, it's just all of them exalt Hector. They feel sorry for him. He's this great, you know. They see Achilles as this big brutal guy, I don't think that's the way Homer sees him. In the Odyssey we saw another kind of perfection. We saw perfection in the, the natural order, but as it's directed towards the family or the home, towards a wife and a child. So we're watching a man leave war and have to confront all these hidden archetypes, these forces underlying our nature. And he had to learn to come to terms with him before he could come home to be the husband he was capable of being, and the father. I'm sorry Mike is not here, um, because he had that question about Odysseus's, um, t- you remember Thereseus's prophecy. Um, but anyway, those are, the, those are the two things I just want to underscore before we leave this Homeric world, because Virgil, Virgil is going to have nothing good to say about e- either of those two men. Because for Virgil, he, ha- he, he took the Homeric world in. He learned from it but he also saw that there was something wrong with it and what we're going to learn in the Aeneid is what was wrong with it that there's a new a new image of man um, that comes into being with this new image of a city the city called Rome and that city will happen to be the center of Christendom you know um, up until our time so um, in the Homeric world, there was this love of individual excellence, individual pride. I can do this. Um, Virtue is possible. We saw that Odysseus represented a mean between all these extremes. Wherever he went, he caused problems. Because what we discover there is he's an image of of a mean, a virtue it makes other people aware of their failures. They get angry, they're upset, they're showing the extremes in which they live. So Homer's showing us that virtue is a possibility, that we can become better in the natural order. We can become... The four natural virtues that are exemplified in Odysseus are temperance, to control our appetites, um, endurance, that we can hold on when things get tough, prudence, we can make the right decisions, you know, that they change under certain circumstances. Prudence means knowing what to do, how to do it, when to do it, because circumstances change all the time. And finally, and most importantly, is justice. Justice is, we've talked about this, the, the fruit of the other virtues. Because justice means taking all the virtues that you've learned to practice in yourself so that you can be just to another person. We've talked about this forever. How do, we ju- how do we be just to another person? How can we give what's due to another person if we don't learn to order our own souls? If our own souls are out of order, if we're given to excesses, how can we really do justice to another? And along these same lines, because I don't want to miss the point, remember, Christ came into the world to answer an injustice. The injustice was done against his father it was our original sin he came to pay a debt to answer an injustice by bringing divine love to it because no human act could answer that injustice our offense was against God only a, only a being who is both a god and a human could answer that injustice Christ made that clear when he said I didn't come to what he, I didn't come to abrogate the law to Do away with it. I came to fulfill the law. Everything he did was to fulfill his father's law, but he brought a divine love to it that nobody else had. To do that, he had to take on our human nature. So justice is always. That's why, if you you know, if you're paying attention in mass, you know that every first reading, the first reading of masses, is always from the or generally from the Old Testament, and the focus almost exclusively in the Old Testament world the law, justice, God's order, his way, his commandments. Early in the week, um, the refrain in the psalm was, I love your commandments, I love your commandments, I love your commandments. God loving the man who does his will, who does God's will. That was his son. That's what Christ did in, in our flesh. So justice has never been a small thing. Odysseus is a man showing us justice. He has to Learn to deal with all these disorders in himself in order to bring to his marriage what what a man is capable of bringing to his marriage. And if you set Odysseus against Nestor in the beginning and Menelaus, because remember those are the two homes that Telemachus visited, you see that he's doing something that neither of those men do. For Nestor, there's no wife. All he can do is talk about his battles. And um, Menelaus is a kind of enabler. He just lets Helena... Helen sort of indulge herself in her drugs. Um, Odysseus is doing something different because he, he was given something in his journeys at sea, all that he learned about these disorders. So that's a, a brief overview, if I can just put into perspective what we've learned from the Homeric world, you know, and in some of the ways that bears on Christ. Um, um, I asked everybody to think about the archetypes. Um, I've got something I want to read, but before I do, any of you want to offer any thoughts? on it? Remember I asked you last week, where do you find the archetypes at home? Because I've, I've been insisting pretty seriously that Odysseus is learning something from every one of those archetypes. The Lestrigonese Queen, the Lotus Eaters, Scylla, Charybdis, the Sirens, Circe, Calypso, the Life of the Dead, the Underworld, all of them are necessary to prepare him to deal with them in some form when he gets home. So anybody want to offer anything? I want, I, I've got a summary thing here to read, but I, and, and I'm sorry Mike's not here because he had that question about Thereseus' prophecy. But any thoughts, do you guys, any thoughts about where he meets those figures at home? Siren, Scala Charybdis, Lestrigonese Queen, lots of them are women, the... The dangers that he's going to face concerning women once he gets home. Any thoughts before we. Tough question. It means learning to see invisible things and seeing them in a visible world where ordinarily we are not aware of them. So it's not an easy thing to see. Any thoughts? Well, I think Odysseus has been in a man's world for so long. We've talked about the me. Before he can come back and meet his wife on an even keel, he has to learn and take something from all of these different groups in order to be able to really engage with her again, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it also goes deeper than that because, I mean, you can, I mean, men can say Nestor has learned how to engage his home, you know, he's in a marriage, and mental allow us but, is too. But, but I, his wife doesn't really... Yeah, does really. exactly, yeah, right, right. I think that's because what, what, and remember, this is poetry, I want to come to this in a minute because I just, I, the, one of the claims I've been making all along is that poetry is revealing something that we can't get anywhere else, so... Homer's making it possible to see and feel things that ordinarily men are not going to feel, or women. And in that sense, they're helping us to become more human. The argument that I've been making is they're helping us to approach Christ. So my, my question is, what are these underlying things that he sees that obviously most of the men in this book do not see? And that we become aware of through poetry I guess is the best way to put it. I think it's important for women to see this, you know, because whatever we feel we very often don't see very well, all of us. Poets help us to open our eyes, men and women both. We we learn to see a lot from what these poets give us. Let me offer this reflection so we can get to the odyssey because I want to put this Greek world behind us. Well, carry it. Not put it. No, that's a bad way to to help us carry this Greek world forward in a better way. Let me put it that way. Um, Odysseus has been, this is something I've written in a, something that I presented in a talk once and um, it speaks to what I think is going on because one of the, questions that has troubled me over the years in my teaching of the odyssey is odysseus has to put to rest a hundred suitors a hundred that's that's too symbolic a number and he does he defeats them all with the help of his son and his father and some other people um you know the swine herd and others um what does it mean because the condition for being reunited with his wife is defeating those suitors and they've been tearing they've been tearing his heart up his house apart for years. So what does it mean for him to come home and kill the suitors? Um, He's been away for nearly twenty years, but since what he encounters on his wanderings is largely the primeval feminine, are we to take his defeat of the suitors as a sign that he's finally free of those powers that a wife has over her husband? By virtue of her beauty and the concupiscence she both arouses and answers. Remember, most of the people that see are feminine figures. The great majority of them are. And you know, I've mentioned this before. He's with, he's under Circe's power for a year. He's under Calypso's power for eight years. So of the nine, of of nine of the of the nine and a half years he's been away, he was directly under the control of those two women figures. And both of them are very possessive. They want to control him. They want to keep him. They want to have him for themselves. So I'm asking, um, is his um, defeat of them, is it a sign that he's finally become free of those powers that a wife has over her husband by virtue of her beauty and concupiscence, the, the desires she arouses and also satisfies? It's surely no coincidence that Odysseus comes home to defeat the suitors just after he's freed from the powers of Circe and Calypso. He's apparently ready to do something he couldn't before. If this is the case, are all the suitors, at an allegorical level, images of what he has to overcome in himself? All that is aroused by Penelope as a woman in order to bring order to his home. What is he facing at home because of Penelope? is it really possible to understand his struggles without linking her with the feminine figures of the wandering? What aspects of the feminine do they image? Now, the argument that I'm going to make here is that woman is a goal. No, she's guide, temptress, goal. She's a number of things. Remember, um, Athena's a feminine figure. She's a guide to him. Penelope's um, an end he wants to get to her. When Calypso offers immortality, he doesn't want immortality, he wants to get back with his wife. Um, the enormous so what what do they image in Penelope of the feminine? The enormous Lestrygones queen seems to be seems to image inordinate power or influence in her home. Look at the influence Penelope has. She's got a hundred men tearing that place apart because they want her. Circe, the sexual attraction that brings out the animal in men. We've talked about this. Calypso, the possessiveness and seductions of a spiritual immortal love. It's what's ethereal in women, the way that men can um, idealize a woman, to see this ethereal, this kind of divine beauty. And I'm trusting we all know that. If you look at Hollywood films or Hollywood advertisement, they're all playing to female beauty. because Why? Because of its power. Skill and crib is the condition of choice that no man can escape without pain when he's in the presence of beauty. And finally, Nausicaa, remember the Phaeacian young princess, um, feminine promise, youth, beauty, graciousness, all that women promise to be when finally loved. How are they all present in Penelope? Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in her all of the feminine disorders mentioned above to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra and Helena, Helen. To the suitors, and this is, I think, the crucial point, at least for me, to the suitors as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality, Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. We're seeing the same thing we saw in the Iliad. To them as lawless men, and this is the point, to them as lawless men, she is death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who's learned restraint and all the other virtues, she is Beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected love. And remember how cunning she is. Remember at the end she tests him. She is not going to go to bed with him unless she's sure that's her husband. So she actually embarrasses him when he's when he, ready to go to bed with her. And and she says to um, your client, make up the bed outside the, you remember the trial scene where, and she says to your client, make up the bed, and Odysseus gets furious. And, and then she knows it's him. To them, as lawless men, she is death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years, helper, temptress, goal. She is finally the fulfillment at the very end. The battle at the end seems to carry something of this meaning if our focus is on Odysseus. If the perspective is enlarged to include both Odysseus and Penelope, the meaning deepens even more. Odysseus's victory over the suitors isn't simply a victory of arms. It represents the clearing away of problems that makes possible a union between Odysseus and Penelope they could not have enjoyed before. I don't think there's any way they could have had this union 20 years before before he left for war. This is something he comes to as he matures as a man and that she comes to as she matures as a woman. Seen in light of Odysseus' adventures, their marriage isn't simply a reunion. It signifies an emergence from some original solitude, some basic egotism or self-serving autonomy. That's hinted at in all of the archetypal figures and confirmed in the other marriages. Because remember, all the I mean, the, the people in the archetypes tend to be alone. They live for themselves. Um, What's remarkable about the two of them is that neither takes any of the opportunities offered them to abandon their marriage and ease their suffering. They both endure. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. Penelope has suffered. She has endured for 20 years waiting for her husband. It's only at the end, remember, that she's going to choose a new husband after 20 years. Um, Their willingness to deny themselves is a measure not only of the worth each holds for the other, but of a quality of disinterestedness, none of the other characters has. Their separation prevents them from having any expectations of each other. They live in hope, waiting. The two of them giving rise to what seemed to be a new kind of virtue peculiar to marriage. This coming together. Through self-renunciations. We can see the opposite of that in the um, in. Um, all the figures in Nestor and Menelaus in lots of ways. So this, this self-denial, this learning to give oneself up, it seems to me to be part of what goes on in the marriage. As the epic hero, the pursuer and searcher, the one in whom Penelope awakens love, Odysseus is the primary one to bear the underlying metaphysical reality into his marriage. He's the man. He's the one to bring it to the marriage. In terms of the epithet given to him, He's long-suffering, enduring. Remember, suffering means bearing up. The word suffering it comes from "fere." It means um, to be fruitful. That's what suffering means. The root of suffering is to bring up. Because once we suffer, um, we've had to give up something. We have a new consciousness. A new a new birth takes place in it. When we're too possessive, and we hold on to things and we lose them, we suffer. It's like a something of a new creature creature is formed in us we become a new person in consciousness. Spiritually we grow. Um, Every encounter with the ontological character of the feminine brings Odysseus to a more profound appreciation of the woman he left behind, thus enabling to see something none of the other men see, either in the Iliad or the Odyssey, that Penelope, as a woman, is a person possessing all the dignity and worth usually attributed only to men. Because that's... That was the condition we left behind in the Iliad, you remember? In this sense, Odysseus's reunion with Penelope isn't simply a return to the wife he left behind. It has to be seen as something new. At some level, not only an answer to the sexual disorders that set the Iliad in motion, but a recovery of some proper order within all of nature. Because remember, what set the Iliad in motion was Paris taking Helen. It was an act of lust. It violated the marriage vow. Homer seems to suggest something to this in what he does with time after Penelope satisfies herself in the question of Odysseus's identity and the two of them go to bed and exchange stories. They spend a the night telling their stories, sharing them. Homer strives Athena doing something remarkable. She makes time stand still. This is Homer. Now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the great... Either. You've been away for 20 years. How are you not going to weep in each other's arms? The joy you would feel, the gratitude, having something back that you thought you lost. It's a moment of wonder. Would would have dawned on their weeping had not the gray-eyed Athena planned it otherwise. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained dawn of the golden throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast-footed horses who bring the daylight to people. She stopped time. So for a moment, husband and wife step out, are allowed to come out of epic time, because epic time is a constant battle. So um, so in Achilles we saw the greatness that a man's capable of at war. And in the Odyssey we're seeing, now remember, this is before Christ. We're not at a supernatural level. God bless this troubles me. If we ever get to Dante as a group, I mean, the end of Dante makes it clear what a glorious creature God made. That the human person is the, the, the greatest thing in creation. He's made in God's image. What if science can get us there? What if the Protestant world can get us there? The Protestant b- world believes we're depraved. Here in the natural world, when we're looking at these pagans, we see man as this extraordinary creature. Achilles shows us something about the glory of man when he admits his fault, admits he's not perfect, and gives his life up when he offers himself. Odysseus is an image of something man's capable of in his family in, in his, when he learns all these things, to restrain himself, to deny himself, uh, in, the, in the presence of woman because of woman's power over men. So long as he's undone by it, there's going to be something lawless at him. It's only when he learns to control these things that he can see her as a person and love her, and she love him. So in the Odyssey, we're getting this extraordinary image of man and what he's capable of in a marriage. So in the Alien, the Odyssey, you know that I've been arguing, we've got two of the most extraordinary foundation works in Western civilization, and it's important in my mind to recover them because we live in a world that denies both of them That man is just a thing, he's an object, he's a product of evolution or he's depraved in the Protestant mind, he's depraved so for Catholics this should be a little bit easier for us I mean, we believe, we don't believe we're depraved we believe that the human person is this glorious thing if we didn't believe it before there's no way not to believe it after Christ because Christ takes on our nature why would, why would God do that if our nature wasn't this extraordinary thing? God, worth saving. It stuns me when I think about the modern view, how awful it is. I can't tell you how much it troubles me, but you've got to know by my expressions right now because I'm ready to swear. <laughs> anyway, that's our Greek world. Let me stop. Um, the, now, hold, live before you. So what's happening at this moment, Virgil, who's a Roman, is receiving the great wisdom. The Romans loved the Greeks. They modeled themselves. They said there's all this extraordinary wisdom that the Greeks achieved. No, in the East, where? Babylon? China? You're not going to find this anywhere. It happened in the Mediterranean, in Greece. Some extraordinary thing happened to show the glory of the human person. The Roman world is going to take it forward. They're going to inherit it. They're going to assimilate it. Here's the great problem that we're going to face now when we read Virgil. What do they learn from it, and how do they translate it? How do they carry it forward and answer the faults of it to bring into existence this new thing called Rome? So we're not going to lose this inheritance. It's going to get carried forward, but it's going to get transformed. And that's at the center of Virgil's work. That's why we're reading Virgil. So let me let me stop for a second. Any any questions about any of that? Connie, what's on that mind of yours? <laughs> I'm so glad to see you back. I admit and don't you if you ever tell me I if you ever tell me again I forgot about I'm gonna If there's a block button, I'm going to put a block on your. (laughs) I hope you know I'm kidding. I hope you know I'm kidding. It's good to see all you guys. I'm saying this because we're leaving an amazing world. This is the Greek world, and you know you, it's it's um, you. You understand some things. I hope about our faith that lots of people don't know today. So, any questions about this Greek world and what we've been doing? Melody, you look like you've got questions i actually have a statement good go ahead Uh, i really enjoyed this book um which sorry which the the odyssey the odyssey Odyssey. yeah because i think i am married to odysseus Um, (laughs) he is very very much like him and it gave me new insight plus i think i don't really Get that men somehow are just goo-goo-eyed over women I, I, I don't know that women have that much power over them but it was interesting to to hear that kind of thing but uh, I yeah I enjoyed this book and I appreciate you running us through this because it was good I'm glad to hear you say that by the way I mean I bless your soul God bless you for a, a wife to say that about her husband first of all and in some indirect way sort of an open a window on yourself because you couldn't say that unless you were really good and, and I'm going to argue with you on the other point there's not a question in my mind about the whatever you say about it um, there's not a question in my mind the power that women have over men if you looked at Hollywood and advertisements the the, I, you, the, the, the way beauty is played the power, the, the way women can play to men, the way it, it the way it um, in, inspires the use of money, the way it can exploit pornography. I mean, you you can't look anywhere and escape that one of the great powers in the natural world is the beauty that women have, and it it says a lot to me that 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 wasn't a comment, which says to me that you and your husband. Are, are not as caught in that world as so many people are. But it seems to me, if you look at the world on its own terms, I mean, it, it, it just shakes me. It just absolutely shakes me because, you know, it's a, it's a la- it, it, caught, it makes me laugh to hear women say, we're, we're the ones who don't have power, and if they get political power, there'll be this equality. Because <laughs> I think the more they step into political power, the more they're going to lose the natural power they have over men. It's, just, it's a laugh to me. <laughs> Anyway, it's um, I think I think beauty and subliminally the way the media plays to it um, gives it away. It's just um, it's it's just I just think it's far greater than most people um, appreciate. Um, but I, I I took honestly an absolute joy in hearing you describe. Um, 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 yeah, your husband. What a what an honor to him, and what an honor to you to say it that way. So, anyway, um, any other comments before we start, Virgil? For the, it's gonna. This is gonna be a confession on my part. Um, for the, I for. I mean, in my at the beginning of my teaching career, i I, well, I, I, I presume you probably get some hint of it from the way I've taught the works, but I love the Iliad, I love the Odyssey, I just think they're extraordinary works. That Homer could have done that 2,000 years ago and watch what poets do today is a little bit embarrassing. He, that, how, how could a man not have written that down and have it memorized to, to tell both of those stories continuously with, with the rhythm and power and measure and harmony, line by line, because they're all measured, you know, with beats. It's just extraordinary. And anyway, for the longest time, I just loved Achilles and, and Odysseus because they're extraordinary figures. Virgil is not that important, but the older I've gotten, um, uh, um, the more I've learned to see the shortcomings in Achilles and, and Odysseus that... Um, from the perspective of Virgil, um, I don't want to take away the greatness of those men, but I hope by the time we finish the Iliad, or I mean the Aeneid, that you'll see that, that Virgil carries the Homeric world forward, Achilles and Odysseus, and he does something to bring people even closer to Christ. And you know that I've already said, I think Achilles and Odysseus are already close to Christ. At both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and with Prusia actions, the return of the king. So lots of, I'm, I'm just stunned. I'm just, I can't, that a poet could see into nature something in nature that already is making visible Christ to him. So it just stuns me. We have no sense of that because we've lost the sense of nature altogether. But he did that, and, and I think in some ways Virgil went beyond him. The kind of hero that he gives us in Aeneas is even more human, far more human and closer to Christ than either Achilles or uh, Odysseus. So we'll have to see what you guys think. You may disagree with me, but... Okay, Um, just a couple of things about Virgil. Um, He was born just before the Pax Romana when um, Augustus Caesar took power. It's an important thing to know because if if you know your history, you know that the, the Pax Romana was that period after um, Caesar took power that lasted for almost 200 years, up until, up until the time of um, Marcus Aurelius. Have you guys seen the, um, the movie The Gladiator? If you've seen the movie The Gladiator, you know that that Marcus Aurelius is the one who, who marks the end of that Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the, and the bad emperors follow him. That, that marks the decline of Rome and it's interesting because he 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 writes the the Iliad or the Aeneid he's he's writing it um from about I think 27 to um I can't remember 17 BC something like that um he's on it he works on it for a long time and he said to his friends that if he didn't finish it before he died he wanted it destroyed and um, Augustus Caesar was so upset by that that, it, and it, um, Virgil died close to the time that he finished the work at least the work as we have it now and he he wanted to make sure that it survived because he saw its greatness Now, in case you don't know those of you who've been together since we started this remember that we started with um, Merchant of Venice and Othello because I wanted everybody to get into the modern world and see the commercial republic and then we went to um, all's well with Helena as a as a modern woman and Anthony and Cleopatra. The Caesar of that play if you remember the conflicts that went on there remember Caesar was very pragmatic very prudent about political things and Anthony and Cleopatra were often the world and lots of people look at that as a as a soap opera you know that that's not my way of looking at it. That I, that I think the love between Antony and Cleopatra is foreshadowing Christ. Caesar can't see it. The world, the Romans can't see it. But the way Shakespeare presents that play makes it clear there's something going on. If you, if you let me just quickly. I wasn't planning on doing this, but let me just remind you. Remember, during the battles between Antony and Caesar, same Augustus Caesar here, um, that. Um, Anthony does some foolish things because of his love of Cleopatra, and because he does some of his major um, captains, lieutenants, leave him. And um, Enobarbus was one of them. And um, and after Enobarbus leaves Anthony, Anthony has a victory, and Enobarbus is crushed in shame, absolutely crushed. And you know that he goes off to die. He doesn't take his life. That is, he's overcome with guilt and despair in his love of Anthony. And remember when Anthony reached a point where he wanted to commit suicide because he thought Cleopatra killed himself, he asked his soldier to, to do the job because that was one of their duties. Do you remember the name of the soldier? Come on, you guys, let's see your hats here. This would have been a quiz. Sophomore year. His name was Eros. Love. And he said he couldn't do it. He loved Anthony so much that he took his own life. Anthony was embarrassed that all these men had the courage to do what he did. And everybody knew in the world he was the greatest fighter. Much, much greater than Caesar. If Caesar and Anthony met on a battlefield, Anthony would have chopped him pieces. And you know at the end of the play when Cleopatra learns that Anthony's dead, that she takes her life. And Caesar tries to do everything he can to keep her because he wants to put her, wants to parade her through Rome as a trophy. Because he sees her, here it is again, he sees her as an object. And her words, <clears throat> her words, remember to her her, I'm not going to let him boy me, <laughs> I love
1: that, I'm not
0: going to let him boy me to, to, to turn her into something other than this extraordinarily sexual beautiful woman. And the night before she takes her life, remember she has that dream of Anthony and she tries to tell Dino, um, Dino Barbas about it and, and he thinks she's mad, but he says, I had a dream, she says, I had a dream last night of Anthony. He was larger than the moon, as great as the stars. Because she's showing us that the human person is greater, this is St. Thomas, the human person is greater than the entire material universe. He's made in the image of God, he's this extraordinary creature. She loved Anthony, and she takes her life. And the maidservants do the same, same because of their love of her. So we're watching this love. These are Egyptians who don't do that sort of thing. The Romans are supposed to do that. We're aware that something's entering the world. The Romans don't see it, but it's just off the horizon. And the Caesar of that play is the Caesar Augustus, who lives at the time when Virgil's writing. Okay? Now the other interesting thing to know about Virgil is he, he wrote a couple of books um, called the uh, uh, one of them was called the Ecologues. Um, one was a pastoral work, the other was his ecologue. And in the fourth ecologue, Virgil describes this child who's to come, who's going to bring peace to the world. This is just 20. 25 years before Christ comes and Virgil is describing this young child who's going to be born into the world. Now one of the interesting things that scholars speculate on is that Virgil would have read the Old Testament. It's it's hard to believe he didn't, that he would have read the Old Testament because so much of what happens in Aeneas' journeys after he leaves, when Troy's destroyed, after he leaves and he has to found this new world, is like the wanderings in the deserts for the Jews trying to find their world to come to the promised land and enter it. So that it, it wouldn't be surprising if he had some sense that a messiah, that that a people was called into existence to come into this promised world. And um, that they did it in the hopes of one day having a messiah, a leader, that would spare them all of these suffering that they go through. It's hard to believe that Virgil didn't have, we don't know that. But it's interesting when you put together the Aeneid with all that, the Trojans go through while they're searching for their home, together with the fourth ecologue where he prophesies this child will come into the world um, who will bring peace to the world. Shortly after he dies the peace romana um, is set in motion. The gates of Janus, the war god, are closed and Rome is in relative peace for almost two hundred years. There were wars, they went on, but for two, relatively speaking there was a peace in Rome that, they, that didn't exist before and that didn't exist after. Um, remember that the great theme of all the epics has been a founding the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Remember that in the Iliad and the Odyssey we've said that each of those books is about a founding that, that a people comes to a new identity of itself because of something a hero does. In the case of Achilles, it's given him a sense of what real honor is—not a false honor, not this egotism that men have when they kill each other. That's a false egotism. It's—it's—it's it's, it's like Sylvester Stallone shooting fifty people with a machine gun, and and fifty people shooting machine guns back at him, and he can't—he's never hit with a bullet. It's this false ego that you know a man can take out a hundred men, and he's—it's um, not—it's not real heroism. Uh, Real heroism in the Iliad requires something more. So every book's been about a founding. in the Iliad it was, it was a people coming to a new identity of what real honor, the integrity, the integrity of the individual human person. It doesn't depend on his wealth, on his booty. It depends on who he is. And the conditions for that integrity are really clear. It's not until he admits his faults and he gives up his life that he can really become. That's the great paradox. It's an amazing paradox. That a man will only come to himself when he gives up his life and admits his weaknesses. In the Odyssey it's a new vision of um, a ruler and a family, a husband and a father. All all that a man can learn about his relationship to a woman because of his struggles. So it's a refounding. its a, It's a new understanding of marriage and its possibilities in the natural order. So there's a refounding, something new entered the world. Now let me just ask this to be clear. How many, in the, how many men in the Iliad, on the field of battle, understand what's going on, as the poet shows it? <coughs> Is everybody clear? How many men in that Achaean group, or even in the Trojans, understand what's really going on? None, right? There's only one poet. There's only one man, and it's the poet, and he's the one showing to us, hopefully, so that we can see and feel, so that it can change our lives. How many men or women in the Odyssey understand what's at stake in marriage? Are you all following? It's only the poet, and this is my way of trying to reinforce again this notion. There's something prophetic going on in good poetry, in the very greatest poetry. It's showing its depths about ourselves that we wouldn't see without their help. So poetry is one of the greatest sources of wisdom that we have in the world and it's being lost today. You know that that's been one of my contentions since the beginning. So, so a founding was at issue in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now it's going to be an issue in the Aeneid, except it's changing. Because the founding in the Iliad and the Odyssey was implicit, it's implied. In the Aeneid, it's going to become explicit. The whole book is about the founding of Rome. What becomes explicit in relationship to this action of the founding is this notion of a calling. Once again it's implied in the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's not here. It's explicit. A man In the Iliad and the Odyssey, a man is called out to do something other men are not. Achilles wouldn't have done what he did without the help of the gods. No man, no man can do what he did. The, the image that Homer gives us makes it clear. Men cannot do what he's showing without the help of the gods. There's something transcendent in man he can only achieve it, realize it with the help of the divine order. That's 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 at the heart of both of those works. So a man is called out to accomplish something, to do something other men are not. It's a lonely task. It sets him apart from other men. It's the nature of tragedy. He's isolated. He's alone. He doesn't do things the way other men do. That means he has to suffer in that darkness alone. True of Achilles, it's true of Odysseus. It's also true of Aeneas, except the difference is in the Aeneid, Aeneas is called out. It's a divinely appointed task. The gods call him to found this city. And one of the interesting things that emerges in this theme of a calling is he sets out to found this city. Um, in one in way, one way he's the paradigm of every husband, of every wife, of every priest. He sets up, I'm saying this for us because I'm, 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 I'm trusting it's, it's, it's going to be more apparent to a Catholic than somebody else. When you get married in the Catholic Church, you enter a sacrament, right? It has a divine aspect to it. It's performed before the altar because implicitly we're saying we're connecting ourselves with the sacrifice of Christ on the altar. We're asked to give our lives. So the whole of the Iliad and the Odyssey is there. There's a divine aspect to it, yeah? So, um, so in, for a husband, a wife, a priest, they're all sacramental in a Catholic world. The interesting thing about the calling is that if we look at Aeneas as an early paradigm, he gets it wrong again and again and again. And the greater part of his life is a failure. He attempts to found a city again and again and again and again, and each time he does, he fails. Imagine a priest trying to figure discern his calling when he thinks he's got it, and three years into his calling, he realizes he's failing, he's not doing something he should. I, I'm assuming that's not an uncommon experience for most priests. And I know as a husband, and I know from our talks that it's true for me as a husband, and Susanna as a wife, that lots of us go through marriages and we go through these points, we call them conversions, ongoing conversions, that we reach these points and say I failed. I'm not doing I, 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 I can see things now I didn't see 15 years ago. I didn't know any better then, I didn't know. Now I do. So Aeneas is the first image Clear image, explicit image we give of a calling, and the the struggling, the suffering um, that's a part of it. To continuously see you've missed, you've missed. Turn a corner, you think you're there, and you discover you're not. Um, Louise Cowan used to describe it as, um, you know, we talked about the rec- the moment of recognition, the peripety, the turn we reach points in this life when we feel like the rug has been pulled out from underneath us we're standing there thinking we're really good (laughs) and then something happens and we realize we're not so good you know that the rug has been pulled out and our whole world turns upside down Um, so aeneas is the one who most explicitly figures that action the action of of a of a calling okay last thing before we turn to the book i think You remember from the beginning. um, We may get to we may get to Virgil tonight. I I hope you guys are patient with me, God. I hope I hope this for those of you who have not started. This should give you a leg up. Um, You you know we you know that we've talked about the apophatic before, in in. It's a, it's a mystical kind of knowledge often. It, it's actually a rhetorical device where you say you're doing something where you're not. When you say, I'm not going to mention this, but the fact that you say that means you're already, you know. So there's something hidden in what's known. And because of the way it's presented, we become more aware of what's hidden than what's known. Is that clear? So there's a mystical tradition that's called apophatic. It's an apophatic knowledge. It's a knowledge by seeing those things we don't know. Okay? I remember giving you, I think I gave you, I think, God, I hope I'm, somebody correct me here if I'm missing, because my hit, my mind is going more and more all, all the time. I think I gave you the examples of, um, of instances when we take the Eucharist. You know, we take Christ into us our faith is that we are in his kingdom we are of him the kingdom is present that's our faith that's our faith more and more Catholics don't believe in the real presence today they look at it nominally like it's a memorial our faith is that when we take it in we we are invited into a holy space put it that way we're in his kingdom I think I used to present this to you and say, so on your way to the parking lot, to your car, where are you? Didn't I ask that of you guys? Where are we? When we, leave, when we leave church and we've got, how many of us just sort of take it for granted? And we're out the door, on our way to the car and home. Where are we? Can any of us identify that space? Because I, I know that for lots of people in that moment, they're so overcome they can't find words to describe where they are you know their husband their wife may look at them strangely and say where are you and you you know I mean how do you find words to describe that moment because it's it's you one on the one hand you you believe you feel you know you believe you're in the kingdom with Christ and the other you're on a parking lot head for your car where are you and you know that my argument all along has been that poetry helps give words to that space it makes the apophatic knowable. We can feel it. It's what's just beyond our perceptions. It's a part of our life, even if we can't give words to it. The, the good poets, how many are good, like that? The good poets are the ones who can find words to help us feel it, to know it. Is that clear? So, here's one of the great themes of the Aeneid. And we'll find it. I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is just sort of giving general overviews and some of the large, the founding, the calling. Um, One of the major themes of the Aeneid is returning to origins. This is going to be huge, huge, huge. One of the most amazing things, and by the way, this is going to prepare us for Dante because Dante is going to pick it up and take it home. How important was the homecoming for Odysseus? Absolutely important, right? when you've been in a city all your life and you're a product of generations and you can look back generations and say my great-grandfather my grandfather my father you know here were our roots this is where we came from and you live that way of life and your life is rooted and suddenly that way of life is destroyed where are you who are you what do you do your language your customs your traditions your material world Gone. Where are you? So lots of people would despair because it's like the Iliad. Um, um, if if your whole identity is with booty, when it's taken away, who are you? Everything that Aeneas had lived for—he and his wife and his father and child—is destroyed. It's gone. What does he do? Where does he go? One of the interesting things that we're going to discover, and to me it's just truly, and what Dante will do with this, will amaze you more, I think, but the roots of it here, if you see it here, you'll see it in the um, the Divine Comedy more clearly than you would if you'd not read Virgil. Because, unless you've read, Virgil is Dante's guy. Virgil's going to take Dante two-thirds of the way up his trip. And he's going to make possible the very ending, Dante's Reunion with God. When Aeneas sets out, he has to found a home. What he's going to discover halfway through his journey is that where he's going is actually where he came from ages ago in antiquity. It's going to be this world of antiquity that's ancient and distant and remote and discover that that's his origins It's going to be one of the great themes. And remember, the great theme of the Odyssey was what? Homecoming. One of the great ironies is Aeneas is going to feel he lost everything. And he's going to discover as he goes back to Italy and founds Rome that he's actually returning to his home. He will never see that home materialize. He will die before it. Dante will pick this up and make it clear that the ultimate home for everybody is God. But in a natural order, the first order of things is our earthly condition. So when he sets out, he doesn't have any idea where he's going. He'll discover at some point, when he didn't even know it, that in setting out to found this place, he's actually returning to origins. Okay? Um... Now, I wanted to read this from Eliot, T.S. Eliot's, because Eliot was um, one of the great readers of Dante. Eliot could not have become the poet. He's, he's the greatest poet of the 20th century. We're going we're to do Eliot. We're going to do the Four Quartets and some other Eliot before we leave as a group. But um, Virgil and Dante were major influences for T.S. Eliot. He was the greatest poet of our time. He wrote a, um, towards the end of his life a work called the Four Quartets, which is one of the most amazing works of poetry in the 20th century. And it begins with this: in the second sect, there are four quartets. So the, the analogy on which the Four Quartets rest is music. Four quartets: these four different voices. This is the second one called East Coker, and it begin- I'm only going to pick out a couple of passages to reinforce the point that I've just made. Okay. The second one, called East Coker, begins like this. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field, or a factory, or a bypass. The phrase, in my beginning is my end, is actually a phrase of a saint, a woman, who was executed when, um, I think, if I... I think it was during the time when Henry VIII made himself the head of the church and began to persecute Catholics. I may have this wrong, but I know it was spoken by a woman, and her last words before she was exorcised, in my end is my beginning. She had no doubts where she was going. She went to her death in peace. So Eliot starts East Coker with an inversion of that line, but listen as he goes through it. In my beginning is my end, in succession houses rise and fall, crumble are extended are removed destroyed restored or in their place is an open field or a factory or a bypass. In my beginning is my end, now the light falls across an open field leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches dark in the afternoon where you lean against a bank while a van passes and the deep lane insists on the direction into the village in the electric heat hypnotized. In a warm haze the sultry light is absorbed not refracted by gray stone. The lilas sleep in the empty silence wait for the early owl. In that open field if you do not come too close notice the time. Remember the apathetic word taking communion you're on your way to the car. Where are you? In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum. Now, at this section of the poem, and it's the only time he does this, he slips into Middle English. I think I've read to you the opening lines of Chaucer's um, Canterbury Tales. Juan d'Arab in the sure, you So this is Middle English. Elliot would have known it. In that field, if you don't come too close on a summer night, you can hear the music of the weak pike and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. The association of man and woman in Singa signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand on the arm which betokeneth concord, Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames or join in circles. Two time dimensions merge. Yeah? We're in our world and suddenly that medieval world is a part of our world simultaneously. It's not in the past. <laughs> it's almost as if we're with God, because remember, with God there's no past and future. All things are. So for a moment, two two time dimensions merge. Okay? Um, and he goes on, I'm just going to read I'm I'm trying to focus on this passage so I'm skipping a lot, if you want to buy T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets and read it because it's, it's, it's the most beautiful piece of poetry in the 20th century Feet rising and falling, eating and drinking dung and death Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence Out at sea the dawn wind wrinkles and slides I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning God, oh, God. Um, um, later in the same piece you say I'm repeating something I've said before I shall say it again shall I say it again in order to arrive there to arrive where you are to get from where you are not You must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own and where you are is where you are not. Um, So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, it's after the war, and he talks about the war, and then he, um, he closes with this. Home is where one starts one. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Not the, in, not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment, and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Old men ought to be explorers, here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrol and the porpoise. in my end is my beginning. Remember, it began, in my beginning is my end, and then it ends, in my end is my beginning. So, Eliot got that, just so you know, from Don, or sorry, from Virgil, the first one, to make it clear, and then Dante, who does amazing things with it. But um, that's one of the major themes, that out of this destruction, that we never see in the Iliad or the Odyssey, This city is destroyed, it will be reduced to crumbles. Um, um, out of this destruction comes this extraordinary thing so defeat cannot be a cause of despair it's one of the most hopeful poems ever written because he's the one who makes clear that out of this defeat some can something great if only man perseveres that was Paul's great virtue so let me stop. I'm gonna I'm to go to the lines of the poem before we do any. We don't have much time, which is okay. But I sort of set out. Um, I want to start. I want to look at the opening lines tonight, and then we'll stop. But any questions about all of this? I know it's a lot. You guys understand the apophatic, right? Okay. I'm all good. I'm going to expect to um, to hear great things about the poetry you guys are writing. <laughs> <laughs> how how easy is it to get into the apophatic? God. The poets who have done that have done amazing things. Anyway. No questions. Come on, you guys. I must be doing something wrong here. Melody, I cannot believe you don't have a question. Tina not yet. Oh sorry, go ahead. No. No, not yet. Just no? Give me some time. Tina. No? Um, no, no, no questions. Heather, come on, you're a teacher. Come on, you got to have a... Don't tell me you don't have a question. I don't believe that. Wow. I must, must not be doing something right here. God. Okay. Um, you guys ready to start, Deanian? Okay, let's start. You all. I hope you all have Fitzgerald's text so we can stay together on this. Oh, by the way, I've told you, the next work we're doing is Boethius, yeah? Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll send an edition this week, but we won't get to it for several weeks, so there's nothing, but just so you know. First page, what, what Virgil's doing is what Homer did that an epic poet should do. He begins by asking the gods for help to tell this poem. So we know that whatever he says is under the inspiration of a divine order, a divine voice. Remember, this is the Logos, the Word. Um, So the, the beauty of this, real beauty, is that he makes clear how important tradition is. He could not do that. We want to disown. We think that everything should be original. Um he's make it clear that he cannot do this without a love of the past, without tradition. So, he honors Homer and his way of seeing things by beginning with an invocation. He invokes the gods to help him tell this story. But immediately become aware of this theme of what I'm calling um, the transformation or the um what's the word not um, when, you, when you translate um, when you take something from one form and turn it to another that he's taking this Greek world and, and he's got to struggle. This is the, the struggle of the poet. He's got to find a way of struggling um, to carry that past forward and transform it and still find words for it. And by the way if it isn't clear I think that's what each one of us does in a marriage. Whatever goes on with our parents, whatever struggles, whatever hardships, whatever whatever bad, whatever good, it doesn't matter. We have to take that past, carry it forward, and redeem it. That's our call, all of us, to carry the past forward and redeem it. Do something to learn from it, to change. That's the central action of the Aeneid, to carry our past forward, <laughs> let me put it this way. When we first married, do we know exactly where we're going? And does it always turn out to be where we thought we were heading? Virgil's or Aeneas's life is in ruins. He set out to go. Is there we want to have every control. We want to know exactly where we're going. We want to get this. The whole point of the Aeneid is we don't quite know what that this is. That it's a mystery. We're involved in moving. And underlying it is this great hope of what will be there. So he's beginning by picking up the past, he's invoking the gods, and he's going to tell this story about Aeneas who will set out on this this quest. I sing of warfare and a man of war from the sea coast of Troy in early days. He came to Italy by destiny to our Lavinian western shore. A fugitive, this captain, buffeted cruelly on land as on sea, He blows from powers, by blows from powers of the air. Behind them, baleful Juno in her sleepless rage. Um, Do you remember who the gods were that were angry in the Iliad and the Odyssey? Anne, go ahead, do you remember? Apollo was the one angry in the Iliad. Remember, because... um, they, um, they dishonored Chryses, his priest, by not accepting the ransom. And Poseidon was the god angered in the Odyssey because Odysseus had blinded his son. I, I want to change this up a little bit if I can here. Lots of people are going to dismiss this because in each case there's an anger on the part of gods that's immediately going to involve men. We know from the readings of the Old Testament that Yahweh was often angered at the Israelites. Often. He took action on them. So we know that divine anger is a real thing on Yahweh. We saw Christ get angry a number of times, pretty seriously angry. He threw the money changers out of the temple. He was furious with them. He got very angry at Peter, said, get behind me, Satan. So don't let the fact that it's God's keep you from seeing that What the poets are recognizing is there's some divine anger. Something has happened involving humans. In this case, it's Juno who is spiteful because she wants Carthage to be the greatest city of the world. She wants it to be her city. And when she sees that the Trojans are moving towards Italy and may found Rome, she wants to do everything she can. So immediately, part of the conflict that Aeneas is going to encounter is the conflict that a divine order sets up for him. Now, um, do it that what you will, and another thing you might think about is Satan belonged to an angelic order. He was invisible to the human order. But we're full, I hope we're fully aware of the kind of problems he presents to a human order. So here in the beginning we, we're talking about a new kind of man. He's a fugitive, number one. He's a fugitive. He's a man at war, um, and cruel looks were in his lot of war till he could found a city and bring home his gods to Latium, land of the Latin race, the Alban lords and the high walls of Rome. Tell me the causes. Oh, now, you know, what, go down a few lines. Can anger black as this prey on the minds of heaven? Can this have a divine origin, this kind of anger? because Aeneas is going to have to face all sorts of problems in order to found this city. So the opening announces the themes. It's a fugitive. He's fleeing. And he's been called to found this city. And there is a divine order at work to stop him. So his obstacles are not going to be small at all. Um, On page 5, we learn that Juno goes to... Um, Aeolus, the god of winds, and stirs up a storm um, that throws Aeneas off Um, on page six at the bottom. They're watching a storm come up and the possibility of their fleet getting destroyed and uh, um, Aeneas says, "Triply triply lucky all you men to whom death came before your father's eyes below the walls of Troy. Bravest Danon, Diomedes, why could I not go down when you had wounded me? Our Hector lies there, torn by, I mean, all these names. Here it is again, and I just want to mention it because it's sort of amazing. These things amaze me. What was the one thing that Achilles was afraid of once he entered the war? Dying by water in the river Xanthos. He said, I'd rather die, I'd rather die in the battlefield than be humiliated by dying in water. What did Odysseus say when he was at sea? Exactly the same thing. I wish I had died on land. What did Telemachus do when he's at sea and threatened? Exactly the same thing as his father. Every one of these heroes, where did that come from? Every one of those heroes faced impossible kinds of obstacles. And the one fear they all had in common was dying by water. What does baptism begin with? Death by water. Okay, let me take a minute. I know that we're close to being out of time what are your thoughts on that who in baptism today is going to go Aeneas was afraid of it, Achilles was afraid of it <laughs> you know, it's a ritual, nobody gives, nobody gives a thought Paul talks about a death by baptism You know, into, it's our entrance into the faith here are its natural roots long before baptism came into existence what's going on? what are these pre-Christian poets seen that most of us don't see I'm going to need some wine for this one (laughs) do you have a thought no 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 don't die do you have a thought you're going to come over have a What's the exact question? All these men have one thing in common in their fears. They face all these impossible tasks. but The one thing they all have in common is this fear of dying by water. Okay, I have an idea. This is, this is Sue. Hi, Sue. Good. I, I, my idea, but I have not read very far. I've gotten about where you are right now. Cause I just knew yesterday that we were going to start this. Um, but my sense is that we have to face our biggest fear and that we, what we often fear is the way to advance, to grow, to be part of something, to be saved. And that, that if that is our greatest fear, that's what we need to face. If we can't do that, then we can't find our way in to Christ, through Christ. Or to God. wait, yeah. Who we are, yeah. Anybody else? The sea is chaos. Yeah, the, the interesting one of the, I mean, we've talked about this a number of times. Remember that the sea is important for Odysseus, the sea is important for Dante. He'll describe himself entering the journey of Paradiso as a ship entering a sea that's going to be dangerous. Moby Dick, we've done Moby Dick together. Shakespeare's The Tempest, Shakespeare's Pericles. Um, Old Man of the Sea. We're doing that in um, Francis right now. The Sea has been um, an image of of mixed things. Um, Some moderns look at it as an image of irrationality. I think there's some sense of that because remember in the Odyssey, um, Athena isn't with Odysseus. He has to learn to come to terms with all these irrational, um, subliminal powers. Um, for lots of writers, for Shakespeare and the Tempest and others, it's an image of grace. It's a danger. Um, a death. I, th- I think, when I, if I can come to anything close to it, it's an image of dissolution. All things go back to... Remember, the sea's always in motion. There's no form there. Melody has a form, and has a form, a tree has a form, a fish has a form. You know, all things have form. Flowers have form. In the sea, all things return to a kind of shifting formlessness. It's like an image of dissolution. And in that sense it can serve as an image of everything that's dangerous along the lines of Sue's saying, it can also serve as an image of grace. Because in, in an instance of being grace, we're asked to completely give up things and enter something completely new to us. So there's um, it. It see the sea is not our home. It's not where we're supposed to be. But and picking up again with Susie, it it's it's something all of us have to face in the in the way of danger, and in the way of grace, both. Okay. So I think when these men all express the same fear. I think it's some primeval sense of being returned to nothing. There's nothing there. I mean, we can say the sea is there, but everything's in dissolution. There's no human person. It's like like standing outside the condition of our being. That we're nothing. Um, But you think about that, but it's interesting here that we're getting... Now, go back just for a moment because in order to go ahead... Uh, it turned to page one, f- the beginning. Remember, he's singing of men at the war. Um, the the storm is gonna is gonna put Aeneas and his men off course, and they're gonna wash up at Carthage. And on page, I think it's one forty-seven. If you turn to one forty-seven, sorry, I have to keep switching glasses. It's just a nuisance. Um, on one forty-seven. Um, This is where the women, um, so many of the women, refuse to go on because the hardships, the physical hardships are too hard. And some of the women are going to inspire some of the other women to burn the ships. So it's going to be another disaster that um, Aeneas is going to have to face. But here, one of them says, "'Miserable women that we are,' she said, "'whom Noachai in hand dragged out to death under the walls of our fatherland.'" unlucky nation for what final blow is fortune keeping you alive we've seen the seventh summer since the fall of Troy Now go back to the beginning What we know now is that he's gonna be washed ashore at Carthage he'll be a year with Dido so he's been wandering for seven at the beginning of the book we're coming in once again in media's race you remember that in the midst of things he's been wandering for seven years He will stay a year with Dido. That'll be eight years. We have to make up some other time in there. But we're we're back in Odysseus's world, or the epic world, in the Iliad, the Odyssey, in the ninth and a half year. Um, He will sail on to um, Italy. Only after he's been here for a while. Um, The first thing that's going to happen is he's going to. I'm I'm going to pick up here when we begin next week because I'm I'm about to call this to an end. um, he, will, he will go ashore. Athena will meet him as a, as a young girl. She will speak to him first. He, he's aware that he's in the presence of a goddess. He's not sure. Or sorry, not Athena. It's Venus. We're in a different world. And I want everybody to, to um, underline that right now. The goddess of love in the Greek world was Aphrodite. She's much more associated with Eros or passion. Aeneas' mother is Venus. There's something far more communal and tender and warm. It's not a passionate like Helen in uh, Paris. She's a different. It's a different image of love that we've entering. She appears to him and gives him directions to um, Dido's um, temple, her city, Carthage, and tells the story of how she got here. That her brother had killed her husband, and she had to flee. So she herself is a fugitive. She comes to Carthage and she creates a city. She wants Carthage to be a great city. Juno wanted Carthage to be the leading city of the world. And one of the first things that Dido does with Aeneas before she realizes that it's him is tell him because um, one of Aeneas' men tells her that the whole company are survivors of the Trojan War. And she knows about Aeneas. She doesn't know then that the man in front of her is Aeneas. She's about to know. But just before she's told that it's Aeneas, she says to the Trojans, you're welcome here to share in complete equality everything I had. So immediately we get the sense that he could have settled here. All the hardships would have been done away. But there's a hardship that he's been called to that he'll have to go on to face. She will welcome him into her palace. She will know that this is Aeneas. And what happens in book two is that he begins to tell the story of the wars and his journeys. Now, what structurally, if you've you've gone to my line and you look at the notes I've given, you should see the scheme of this. The first six books of the Aeneid are based on the Odyssey. They're about Aeneas' journeys, his voyages. The second six books are about the battles of Troy. They're based on the Iliad. It's there where he's going to have to go to war with all these um, ethnic groups killing each other. Um, so it, it's going to turn really dark and vicious at the end. But the structure of the Neiad is that. The first six books are based on the Odyssey, the second six books um, on the Iliad. Here he's about to go into um, Dido's palace. They will have an affair for a year. It'll, it'll be the equivalent of um, Circe and Calypso. So one of the first questions I'm going to ask next time we meet a week from now is, what's the difference between what happens with Aeneas and Dido and um, Circe and Calypso? That's not a small question. If you know your history, you know that the greatest threat to Rome during its history was the wars that it had with Carthage. Carthage almost destroyed Rome. The Punic Wars, they went on for ages again and again. Those are the great wars. Um, so the the what to call it the origins of those wars the seeds planted for them are here in the relationship between Aeneas and Dido. But the crucial question that I I want to go through the beginning we'll pick up here we'll we'll cover the first two or three books next week first two or three books. But the question I want to start with after we, I'm going to go through a couple of pages just to get this behind it. One of the first questions I want to ask is what's the difference between what Aeneas experiences with um Dido and what Odysseus experiences with both Circe and Calypso. Okay? Huge question. What does Virgil do to change it and why? How does that make for a different kind of hero? Okay. So we're on our way. Um, it's an extraordinary book. Um, I didn't say this before, but I'll say it now. It's I mean it's it's a minor point, but it's worth knowing. Homer's poets poets Homer's epics are part of an oral tradition. They were passed on orally. They weren't written down until the fifth century. So they're called primitive primary epics. Virgil's epic is called a secondary or literary. It's far more formal. Far more formal. It's far more literary, consciously. So we're entering a world of greater artistry. So it it um the language is a little bit more polished it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a shorter book but the language is very different so just know that, it's not an accident Virgil's a poet, self-consciously writing it's a, it's a good book, it's a wonderful book um, be patient with the stylistic things it's a different epic, it's a very different epic Okay. Um, okay, it's good to see you all enjoy this book, it's an extraordinary book really an extraordinary book um, and it prepares us, really, for the Divine Comedy. We've got Boethius to do before that, but this is the setting for the Divine Comedy, which is the central work of Christendom. So, Okay, you guys all have a good week. Um, um, Heather, it was good to see you. Connie, it was good to see you. If you ever forget again, come <laughs> come get Mary is Mary not coming back Connie is she, is she? you know I, I haven't spoken with her I know she works on Tuesdays and she works 12 hour days oh god and she says she's so tired yeah I'm um, sure I'm sure so I just don't know uh, if she's going to be able to make it back but tell her for me that I miss her and I know she I, I mean she's working she can't tell her that the audios are online I mean she can hear them yeah, they're still available true. so that's true. I will. I will. You are a good group. Um, it's just good to see you all. Stay with your readings, okay? Have, have a good week, and all of you stay safe. Keep this virus off. Um, we will pray for you guys. Please pray for us, okay? See you in a Thank week. You. See you in a week.
1: Thank, Thank you very much.
0: So much. Thank you. Good night. Good night, everyone. Bye. We'll go sometime here. <laughs> Literature's prophecy, I have no idea what this is. Oh hell, what had I do to get, I don't know what to do. Leave. How was the call quality? I couldn't I don't know, dismiss, I have no idea. Oh.